Hi, this is John Leahy. Thanks so much for tuning in to Airing It Out, Files from Leahy's Broadcast Booth. If you like what you hear, please consider subscribing. On the major platforms like Apple and Spotify, we come out with brand new episodes every Wednesday with refreshing content. So I thank you for your support. And again, you're listening to Airing It Out, Files from Leahy's Broadcast Booth. And I encourage you to subscribe. Thanks and enjoy this week's episode. everyone and welcome to the latest edition of Airing It Out, Files from Leahy's Broadcast Booth. I'm John Leahy. I'm your host. Thanks so much for being with us here on the podcast this week as well as every week. I want to thank my uh, guest from last week, the Venerable Chuck Caton, former uh, radio voice of the Hartford Whalers and the Carolina Hurricanes. Uh, Chuck finished up uh, his three-part series on uh, classic NHL arenas. And it is a, an extraordinary listen. If you haven't had a chance to check that out, I encourage you to do so. Uh, if you'd like to check out that episode or any other episode that we've done, uh, please feel free to check out the website we have for the podcast at LeahyStorytelling.com. That's L-E-A-H-Y Storytelling.com. All the episodes are there. You can search for them and uh, listen to anyone you'd like. There's uh, also uh, plenty of features on the website for you to check out. We have a rating system. You can rate uh, particular episodes from zero to five stars. You can also leave a written review. There's also a blog there. There is also a uh, an area uh, with some videos, and uh, also uh, you can leave a voice message. There is a purple microphone at the lower corner, right corner of each page, and you can leave any kind of comments you would like. So I encourage you to check that out. Uh, this week on the podcast, we are going to uh, visit with the co-author of the book, Game Misconduct, Hockey's Toxic Culture and How to Fix It. Uh, joining me is longtime hockey reporter Joshvina Shah. And uh, Joshvina, uh, I want to welcome you to the podcast, and I really had uh, a wonderful experience reading your book. Thank you for having me. Also, wonderful is not the term I would use. Well, I understand. You know, it it touches on uh, it touches on some topics that uh, that you feel is uh, uh, quite important, and we're going to discuss it uh, in depth. First of all, you uh, you wrote the book, uh, co-wrote the book with uh, Evan Moore. Uh, tell us a little bit about him and what his hockey uh, experience is. Yeah, so Evan grew up in Chicago, and basically he has an experience where he was a fan and he played hockey. So it's a little bit about that side and then he's written a lot about kind of the intersections between hockey and culture hockey and racism so we've kind of always been on the same page about that and honestly i think that's why how we found each other in the first place is because we both like talked about similar topics when a lot of other people wouldn't really talk about that um like evan used to write for chicago sometimes and he's he's freelanced for a lot of places 
Absolutely. And uh, let's talk a little bit about your connection to the game. Uh, I know you've been a college hockey reporter for quite some time, and uh, you have a lot of ties uh, to Boston University. Uh, Tell us about your experience with the game, first of all, and uh, how you grew to love it so much. Yeah, so it's kind of funny because um, I, I was born in Massachusetts, and I actually grew up in Andover. And at the time, a lot of Bruins players used to live in that area. Um, and my dad's barber actually used to cut their hair. <laughs> so th- this was like the early 1990s when I was like, you know, three or four years old. Yeah. And my parents uh, lived in Cleveland. So they, we were big football fans, but we were not hockey fans. So we watched football, baseball, basketball, but never hockey. So um, my dad's barber had actually given him this vintage poster of Cam Neely and Ray Bork from yep. like the 80s, yep. which I, he still has it. And I, it's in my possession now. But it's funny because at the time, my dad was just like, oh, okay, these random people, all right. Um, And I don't know. You know, I never grew up watching hockey. And then um, one day I was just like, you know, I'm a bad Boston fan because I don't follow the Bruins. Uh, But by that point, uh, because we moved when I was five, I was living in New Jersey. So I started watching the Devils. And I pretty much turned on the TV And it was also right after my brother had left for college, which I think played a huge part because it meant I had more time to watch TV. And that was it. I saw like five minutes and I saw, who was it? Oh man, now I can't remember. A Devils player who I don't remember who it was laid a hit on some guy named Sean Avery. Right. And that was like the first time I ever watched hockey and that was it. I was hooked. Oh, that's great. Uh, what about your, your time at BU? Were you a student there, or did you just uh, develop a love for the Terriers? How did that all connect in? No, I was a student there, so I never followed college hockey. I think the extent to which I had followed college hockey was that Kevin Shattenkirk, while he was the year before I was a student, or I think after I had already put in my deposit, um, they had interviewed him. On like some game I was, I was watching some hockey game and they had like interviewed him but I never followed college hockey before um until I went to BU so I went to BU so I could go to the journalism school and honestly never watched college hockey before started watching it there because that's what you're supposed to do as a student and obviously they were coming off that 09 national title so I don't know. I just did it because that's what you're supposed to do. And I definitely had like a, some ups and downs with my following of the men's hockey team. Um, I boycotted them one year, which is really funny because wow. I was mad that no one, <laughs> I was mad that no one would see the women play. And that was the year that the women made their first ever national championship game. So like I stopped, I went to like a couple men's games, but not more than that. And then I started covering them and I think, when I started covering them, I mean, now it's a little different, like when you look at the media, but I think back then it was, it felt like a really big deal and a lot of people really cared about the program. So that really rubbed off on me. And honestly, like that, that was it at that point, my fate was sealed. All right. And the rest, as they say, is history. You're a, you're a prolific reporter for uh, CHN. I know you just covered the uh, Frozen Four down in Tampa. So uh, glad to see you're so uh, involved with the game you love. Uh, I want to talk about uh, the book that you co-wrote. That's uh, the focus of what this episode is about. It's called Game Misconduct, Hockey's Toxic Culture, and How to Fix It. And uh, we'll, we'll just go through the book, and, and you can kind of give me your thoughts on, on things here. And, uh, you know, the book starts 
starts with a talk about hockey culture and some of the problems that are associated with the culture of hockey. And the first thing that I noticed was you mentioned the concept of toxic masculinity, sort of a culture of silence and outsiders not being accepted. Uh, maybe you could talk more about that and, and how you've seen that problem sort of uh, surface over the years. Yeah, I mean, it's very much like a lot of it, when you think about the idea of we don't like outsiders, I mean, like you think of kind of how locker rooms are ruled and how it's basically like you follow the leader and that's it. There's really no room to stray. And it's very kind of closed off and it's just a very specific set of people play the game and a very specific set of people are at the games. And there's really not that much room for people who are, and I, I don't even mean like people of a different race or religion or whatever. I really mean like people who, I mean, now it's a little bit different. I think people are more comfortable like expressing their individuality, but it's even like, hey, people who like to, I don't know, draw, maybe will not be that, will not show that side of themselves. Um, because it's just very like everything is expected to be uniform and the same. And it, it, it comes from this idea that they preach like part of hockey culture preaches unity, right? We're so together. We're really bonded. We're a good team. But they, what happens is like the people who are leading hockey, whether that's, you know, I don't necessarily know if it's general managers, but like people who are in charge at the top coaches they kind of take these qualities that are good and just really kind of push them to the extreme. So when it's like unity and we're all on the same goal, it literally becomes like we're all alike and we don't want anything that's different in our locker room. Mm. And, uh, you know, you talk about uh, the principle of conformity, right? Uh, respect, I guess, means uh, not questioning your coaches. Uh, you've, I guess you, you've experienced that uh, in hockey. Uh, or you, you've noticed it uh, and uh, you had the chance to write about it. Yeah, I think there are so many things that happen, unfortunately, in hockey that it's really hard to remember specific things, which is part of how they get you really any momentum to enact change is just I mean like you look at Hockey Canada and you look at the Chicago Blackhawks and you even look at the Bruins trying to sign Mitchell Miller who's really talking about that right now you know so like everything is kind of wait someone's retiring sorry <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're talking about Don Vaughn at Colgate I think oh no Oh, I was, oh my God, I was so upset that was going to be his last game. Oh uh, yeah, I just got a just got a notification about that uh, as well. Uh, maybe we could talk about that at the end, yeah. Um, but, yeah, uh, oh my gosh, I'm like heartbroken now. Okay, hmm. um, so, conformity, right? Yeah, so there are so many, let me start again. Okay, you were asking about... We talked about conformity and, and respect, okay. meaning not questioning the coaches. Yeah, I mean, I, it's hard to come up with a specific example. And I, I think part of that is because it happens all the time everywhere. And there are a lot of things that keep happening just in hockey itself. So it becomes really hard to keep track of things like even when we were writing this book, like dating back three, four years, Evan and I had like 200 lists of separate incidences. And I was only going back to four years. And a lot of it was like, people would constantly be reminding me like, oh, this happened or like, oh, that happened. But 
it's a lot of it is just like in the way coaches are it's like there there has to be a line of balance between you're going to come in you're going to play by my rules my systems you're going to respect the culture and just the like they wield so much power that it's like i tell you to do this you do this and i think it's really evident like there are a lot of um kind of anecdotes and stories we have where these coaches are kind of like directing these drills or they're saying these things that are like totally horrible and everyone's kind of just like this is bad but we're still going to do it because you, you you don't have a choice they wield all that power and if you don't listen to them it's like all right you're off the team yeah and uh you also made the point that hockey culture uh those types of things really begin at the youth level don't they so uh it, it it's kind of rooted in in the earliest of stages of hockey right I'm sorry, can you repeat the question? Oh, yeah. Well, you talked about hockey culture and how uh, how those types of things begin to surface at the youth level, right? So that mm-hmm. that that, yeah. ki- that kind of starts at an early stage, right? Yeah, well, that's the problem. I mean, if you think about players and hazing, like the players who don't haze other players are the ones who are not hazed themselves. But if they get hazed at a young age, like they grow up and they become the hazers. And I mean, the problem is like, their coaches are not really vetted. And I look again, look at hockey Canada. Like they didn't do, I mean, I was kind of shocked because after everything that happened over the last summer, they came out with some initiatives or changes. And one of them was like, it just occurred to me that they never even took basic youth safety practices into consideration. Like they still like, they were like, Oh, we'll get off ice references for the coaches. And I'm like, wait, you never got off ice references for the coaches who are teaching and shaping your kids. Like you never did that. That's crazy. And I mean, they're not really vetting the people or seeing who they are as people. And that is where it starts. And they teach the younger kids and that's who they become. They, it's, it's, that's part of the reason why we can't break the cycle is we have to look at who's teaching the kids. Okay, right. And uh, you talk about the structure of hockey, right? There are multiple pathways and routes uh, to move up uh, in hockey, uh, and it's very complex, right, due to the multiple levels of play. So it's it's kind of hard to have uniformity to kind of uh, enforce rules across the platform, right, because it, it's it, the structure is, is so complex. Mm-hmm. And I was actually talking to Courtney Cito about that, and she was the one that said, well, that's not a mistake that's by design. And I mean, it's so easy to simply pass off the responsibility to someone else. And I even, even since the time we wrote the book, it's changed because the BCHL is now no longer a part of the CHL. And I mean, there are instances where like, there are CHL teams that are, or CJHL teams that are underneath Hockey Canada, but the CJHL itself is not under Hockey Canada. And I mean, Hockey Canada might be doing a lot of changes, but the major junior teams, like if we think back to what happened with Hockey Canada last year, all the allegations that are going on there. Yep. Hockey Canada can make recommendations, but major juniors does not have to take them. Mm-hmm. And Hockey Canada is the one bearing the responsibility because it was a Hockey Canada event. But those kids do not come from Hockey Canada. They came from major juniors or they come from college hockey. They come from somewhere else and they gather together for once a year to play in this tournament. They did not learn the culture. They Players don't learn a culture rape in like a week. I, you know, it came from somewhere else and those roots are not being addressed and they're not being looked at. And the CHL was kind of like, 
didn't have to do anything because it all fell on Hockey Canada. And, you know, for obvious reasons, which I think are well-merited, but you can't forget the CHL, the CHL's role in this. And that's the problem. Like, there are so many different, and I, another point that we kind of made is like, there are so many different, with the great thing about hockey, right, is that it's really international. You know, you have players, yep. obviously there's a lot of cross-pollination between the U.S. and Canada. You have players coming from Russia, from Finland, from Sweden, all over the country, you know, all over the world, crossing oceans, playing with each other. And that's great. But it also means that if we're not making policies that are uniform across the board, we're not covering all our bases. Because if Hockey Canada, hopefully, is teaching their kids how to do the right thing or, you know, actually putting more effort into teaching them how to be better people, but the U.S. isn't, well, U.S. kids are going to go up and play major junior. Um, Canadian kids are going to come down and play college hockey, or they're going to come down here and play juniors. Then what? You know, how, right. how does that how, how does that work? Right. They're still there's their minds are still forming at that age. Right. Uh, the book also goes into different forms of uh, toxic behavior, and you kind of address those chapter by chapter. Uh, the longest chapter in the book is about racism, and there's there's been a lot of instances, unfortunately, uh, where that has reared its ugly head. Uh, there's a story in there about John Van Beesbrook, the former Ranger and Panther goaltender who was involved in a very unfortunate situation. Also, the Bill Peters uh, situation with Akeem Alou. And, uh, of course, you made reference to Mitchell Miller, uh, who was involved in that terrible incident uh, out at North Dakota uh, with his uh, development, developmentally disabled uh, classmate. And uh, he was still uh, drafted after the incident. The NHL teams uh, were still looking at him, the Bruins for one, and uh, thankfully the Bruins cut ties with Mitchell Miller. But uh, racism uh, certainly has been uh, 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 prevalent uh, as evidenced by those uh, incidents so uh, that's that seems like a big topic that needs to be addressed yeah and I'm I, I mean part of the part of the reason Evan and I wrote this book is because it was like okay you know there's not a snap my fingers and there's a solution solution that's not ever going to happen but there are very obvious and easy steps that you can take to at least mitigate it and part of the reason we wrote it is because no one was taking like even the most basic steps. Okay. And it's like really frustrating. You want to tear your hair out because the same things keep happening. And it's like, and I, you mentioned Mitchell Miller. And I mean, it's wild because it's bad, right? You know, it's bad. Obviously the Bruins didn't care about that. You know, they just wanted someone to help them win. But from a sheer PR perspective, like why? Like, don't like, Forget even the morally, it's a bad thing to have them on your team. Like, do you not care about the PR perspective? It's just like, it's it's crazy. This stuff keeps happening. And I mean, part of the reason it happens is because, well, you mentioned John Van Beesbrook, who has a front-facing position at USA Hockey. Why are kids going to think it's okay to be racist? Right. Because a, a racist man is literally the GM of USA Hockey. Mm. So they're they're seeing this it's like totally okay usa hockey's greenlighting it yeah and so, uh, yeah. yeah go ahead yeah oh no no i was just right right uh there, there's another topic that you touch on as well and that's uh, sexual violence and sexism um that has to do with women being harassed online recipients of sexual insults uh, questioned about their hockey knowledge and uh, inappropriate comments and um 
you know, victims have kind of been afraid to open up due to fear of retaliation, lack of faith in the police. Uh, they feel that it's a personal matter. And I know that, uh, you know, hockey has a long way to go uh, to address these issues as well. Yeah, and a big thing is that, um, and it, this is really still quite amazing in the worst way possible, um, I talk to a lot of people about specifically kind of policymaking. Um, and, you know, I, when all of the stuff happened with Austin, um, Austin Watson, uh, Gary Bettman basically came out and said, I'm not going to make a policy for like domestic violence or sexual violence or whatever. And everyone has pretty much said, you need a policy. And this is kind of, NFL is bad, but at least the NFL has their personal conduct policy under which they can suspend people pending an investigation. And that's like a big thing because a lot of what, a lot of what you'll see around, around now is like people can't say X, Y, and Z, or they can't do X, Y, and Z to this person because they're afraid of legal retaliation. Yeah. Um, but the personal conduct clause is like how you get around that because they sign that contract and it says if you do anything basically that like tarnishes the reputation of the league, we can suspend you. Um, but there's, there's no base policy. So everything is kind of like fly by the seat of our pants with the NHL. And that's not how this works. And that's, that's again, that's like a very basic step is you put in a policy on how you're going to deal with um, instances of accused domestic violence or accused sexual assault, but that doesn't exist. And Bettman has repeatedly said that he refuses to make it happen. And you go back to what happened with the Blackhawks. Yeah. There, zero, zero policy in place. And what there's literally no punishment has been handed down pretty much. Right. I mean, very minimal. So, right. Um, you know, another topic that you also touch on is bullying, hazing, and abuse. Um, systemic abuse, uh, sexual abuse of athletes by coaches, hazing, the trials and rituals which are used to initiate new members, and, uh, and bullying, which, uh, you know, encompasses a lot of uh, behavior. Um, there's been a lot of horrific hazing examples. I re remember the one uh, incident that you talked about in the book with uh, Vermont canceling their season uh, back in the remainder of their season back in 2000. Uh, you know, to me, hazing is is awful. It's just it's terrible. You see it, and uh, you just you wish there was something you could do to kind of confront that and and put that in the rearview mirror. But I know the book talks about uh, those types of incidents, and you know, hopefully, there's a way to address that going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's tough because at some point, again, like I kind of mentioned before, the cycle has to be broken somewhere. Like I've the players that I've talked to who don't haze people, you know, we're never the victims of hazing themselves. But for players who are hazed, they're going to dish it out. And that also comes from the people who are leading your teams. You know, there are instances where coaches participate in hazing, which is horrible, or they encourage it or they know about it and they don't stop it. And which I mean, makes like which that, makes you just as guilty, right? If you know about it and don't, oh, absolutely, you know, don't do anything about it, you're just as culpable. Or like, honestly, if you're a coach and you don't know that your team is hazing, and if you don't know what's going on on your own team, you should also not be a coach. Like at that point, if yeah. you are not capable of like, of you know, having some control or some knowledge of what's going on or whatever, like I think you're still guilty. Like it's kind of the thing. Like, is it worse to know or not to know? Like, you know, because if you don't know, that's a problem. You should know. I don't think that's an excuse saying, oh, I didn't know this was happening. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, considering all, all that, that coaches know about the inner workings of their team, uh, that would be hard to miss, right? I would assume so. I mean, I guess it depends, but I feel like you, you would notice something is going on or you would notice that there's something wrong with players or, you know, you would notice. And I mean, like, I even think about Michigan's locker room last year compared to this year, like it's way different and you can notice a change. Right. So if you're right. around people all the time, you would notice something's amiss. Right. Um, you know, you talked about women's hockey as well, and I'd like to get your thoughts on, on women's hockey. You know, you, you made the comparison between women's hockey and, and men's hockey, uh, some of the differences between the two. Do you feel that women's hockey is becoming more inclusive now? Do you, do you feel like women's hockey is making strides? Mm, in some ways it's better, and in some ways it's totally worse. Okay. I don't know if I, I don't know if I feel like it is any better. I mean, Abby Rock plays for the U.S. national team, so she's actually the first Indigenous woman to ever play for the U.S. national team, which is like crazy that it's been so long. But it's also great to have her there because for a really long time, there was no woman of color on the national team. Right. But then considering some of those people who are on the national team, it's like, would you want to play on the national team knowing who's on it? So um, I don't know. You know, I really think like everything that happened with Barstool and with Soraya Tinker was pretty indicative that women's hockey is still really far in the trash. Um, But they kind of escape it because in some cases we have bigger fish to fry. Like who's going to remember that whole thing um, when you're thinking about Hockey Canada's secret secret slush fund to pay off sexual assault victims under the table, you know, like one is more one is seemingly more pressing than the other. So, and women's hockey, just because it doesn't have the national kind of attention, it's it's a lot of that stuff is kind of going to fly under the radar. And it's a lot more like people know who's good, who's not, and they kind of like whisper it, so you have an idea, but. I will say, though, a lot of people showed who they truly are after that whole thing happened, like Amanda Kessel. So so it's better to know than not to know. I mean, I don't know. I can't say that it's any better. I've I've heard that there are there's work being taken by, like, the PWHPA. So um, I'm keeping my fingers crossed that that's kind of helping helping them be more inclusive. Yeah, I guess I was I was thinking along the terms of, you know, the the television coverage and, you know, the expansion of leagues. I know, uh, you know, huh? you know, Hockey East has, uh, you know, added a few teams in the last few years could Merrimack and Holy Cross and mm-hmm. whatnot, but uh yeah, um I guess there's you know, it's always a work in progress. So, you know, we hope that uh that women's hockey continues to to uh, build and grow. Um, the, the, you also talk about ableism in the book, and uh, that has to do with uh, people with disabilities. Um, you know, I, I kind of got the sense that you feel that, that more can be done uh, to help uh, people with, with disabilities, and, uh, you know, you touch on that uh, in the book as well. Yeah, I mean, and again, I think it's really basic stuff. Like, if you're thinking about college hockey, like, I don't know if you've ever been to the Times Union Center in Albany, but, like, that place is horribly inaccessible. Okay. Um, and which I realized last year because I had just, you know, restrained my ankles, broken my nose, whatever, and I had a really hard time navigating it. Um, compared to Allentown, which is actually really easy to get around and like really accessible. But it's even things like um, in Tampa, they were doing, I don't know why they did this, but they kind of had like really weird laser 
strobing lights on the ice. And I was like, for someone with like sensory issues, this is not good for them. And it's also not necessary, you know, like right. this is not really adding anything to the overall presentation. It's kind of pointless and it's, it's just making it worse. Um, so like it's, it's even things like that, you know, and it's not even like, obviously there are big issues to tackle, but it's like even the small things, like, I mean, some room, some, um, teams are getting better about, you know, having sensory rooms and things like that, or like quiet rooms, but I don't know. There was a team that like had an autism acceptance night. I think it was the devils. And I was just like, okay, but that should be part of your everyday right like yeah, that should yeah. be part of all your offerings at every game not for one night right so i mean i i think um the nhl is definitely really start really far behind when it comes to that okay and uh obviously uh, an important topic also that you discuss in the book is homophobia biphobia transphobia uh that encum- encompasses things like gay slurs homophobic lab- uh, language uh, you know, you, you talk about parents who, who really have the most power to stop it. Uh, it could be coming, those types of things could be coming from the family environment or maybe online. Or uh, So tell us about how you feel change needs to happen in terms of, of those types of instances. Um, well, I think for starters, like some teams do a good job of this. Well, okay. I think right now it's just with the whole pride Jersey stuff, we've really taken a lot of steps back. Um, I'm not a fan of the article, the athletic published because in some ways it really was just speculation and they really only use anonymous sources. So you can't even really hold anyone accountable for what they've said. And you don't, because it's an anonymous source, you don't really know where it's coming from. Like if it's coming from someone who's a team executive and wants to like, make it seem like the, you know what I'm, you don't know, and you don't know what the person's motivation is. And like, honestly, and I think people have done a good job of kind of debunking it, like, but now you've allowed every other team to use Russia as an excuse to automatically not wear pride jerseys. And I mean, it's like, we've just taken like 8,000 steps backwards. And I know in the grand scheme of things, like it's very performative, but it's a really simple, effortless gesture for someone to make. Like it, it means something and it's easy to do. And the fact that we can't even get past that is a problem. But I mean, you also still have places where, you know, Chick-fil-A is sponsoring or advertised or whatever. And Chick-fil-A, I'm pretty sure is still donating money to homophobic um, organizations. So, and there's, there's not, you know, there's really no, and the NHL made it pretty clear that they're not going to step in, which I mean, I don't even want to get into hockey is for everything because it's always been a load of crap. And now we really know it's a load of crap, but Stepman was basically like, yeah, we're just going to respect their right to decide to be homophobic. Like we're not going to even try and educate anybody. And ultimately I think you do have that responsibility. So, you know, if you're, you're taking taxpayer dollars to build your stadiums, you've got a responsibility to do it. I don't care. Right. We're talking with uh, Josephina Shaw. She is the co-author of the book Game Misconduct, uh, Hockey's Toxic Culture and How to Fix It. She co-wrote the book with Evan Moore. Uh, so, Josephina, let's talk about uh, why this happens and, and how, how to fix it. Uh, you talk about toxic masculinity. Uh, you believe that that contributes to the toxic behavior. Um, another aspect is that um, hockey 
also pushes athletes to play through injuries and uh, hero worship. You talk about that a little bit. Uh, so talk, talk to us a little bit about uh, why you feel these things happen. Well, a lot of it has to do with where you are. But, I mean, if you look at a school like BU, we don't have a football team. So hockey is everything. Yeah. Um, it's not really the same now as it was when I was there. But, like, those people are stars. And it's kind of like our fault. <laughs> you know, like, I'm to blame. I'm a writer. Like, I do the same thing. I do this. Uh, and it's just like, you know, if it's a small town in Canada, like they're the stars, this person might play in the NHL, like everyone loves, everyone just wants the idea, like they want to be famous. So that's kind of where it comes from. And it, it depends on where you are and the location, obviously, you know, at a smaller school, like Colgate, let's use Colgate as an example. It, it's not the same. Um, hockey is not the same there as it is at a school like BU or yeah. Minnesota or Wisconsin. So it definitely varies by where you are, but the the way a town or a school is set up and kind of how big it is really contributes a lot to whether, I, I don't know where it came from that we decided to put athletes on a pedestal. Like I have no idea why, but somehow somewhere that happened and it still happens today. And it's just, I, I don't know. People are just act like they're gods when they're really just people and I think it's harmful also to them like it's not good for like a 14 year old to be considered a god like that's ridiculous yeah um yeah yeah, I mean, I've I've been guilty of that myself. When I meet a, a broadcaster who is at the top level of the business, you know, there's another term for it, starstruck, right? Uh, but, mm -hmm. you know, it, it that's kind of along that, that same concept. Um, but, I feel like it's more yeah. reasonable if it's like, oh, a broadcaster or like a reporter, because there's probably a very small subset of people who would think that person's really great. Yeah. Like, I would have been that like that with Doc Emmerich, because I'm a Devils fan. Oh, yeah. But, yep. like... Not as many people are going to, like, love Doc Emmerich as would love, like, I don't know, Marty Broder, you know? Yeah, right, right. Understood. Um, so let's talk about some possible solutions based on the, the problems you've addressed in the book. Uh, uh, one of the things you mentioned is vetting. The vetting uh, process needs to be much stronger, right? Mm -hmm. And then Hockey Canada is taking a few more steps towards it, but I I don't feel like it's enough. Um, and there are guidelines everywhere and also you know uh the usa hockey i'm sure can afford to like consult with an organization that focuses on like youth safety protection because simply not enough is being done and i i get too that it's part of like a shortage you just you can't really be picky because you need coaches but somehow we've got to figure that out whether that is lessening a coach responsibility or lessening the amount of whatever it is we need to figure that out um, so I know it's not a perfect solution, but I think it's definitely a place to start because you really need to be selective about who you're letting teach your kids. Like, I mean, it's wild. I don't know. It's yeah. crazy because I, I feel like some of these people are the same people who are like banning books, but it's like you want to ban books, but you're letting your kids just go with whoever Joe Schmo off the street. Right. Like, okay. Right. Uh, a couple of other uh, things you address in terms of solutions. I want to talk about each one individually. One is uh, education and one is oversight. Uh, education, uh, you talk about how it's important to emphasize education. And it, it's uh, fundamental for all levels, uh, needs to be expansive. Can you talk more about how the education process needs to be better in light of all these problems? Yeah, it, it's kind of hard because 
I think you have to hit it at three different levels. I think you have to educate the coaches, you have to educate the players, and you also have to educate like the players who are in the NHL now because those players are the ones who the kids look up to. So if you're telling the kids like racism is bad, but then you're or I don't know, if you're telling kids violence is bad, but then you're like putting Patrick Kane on a pedestal, you're sending two very different messages to them. So that's why I think it has to be at those levels. And I mean, obviously you need to make sure that the coaches are able to provide the right training and the right coaching and are equipped to handle issues that might arise. However, with the coaches, it's harder because there's no, I mean, I know that there is like training required, but it's very easy to either not take it or to take it and not pay attention or to have someone else take it for you. Yeah. So you really actually have to find people who are committed and actually care to do the right thing. Because otherwise you can teach them as much as you want when it comes to coaches, but coaches are not little kids who are just going to take whatever you tell them at face value. Like my, when I taught, like my four-year-olds knew racism was bad. Like not that hard to teach kids that racism is bad. Right. And then I, I think on the flip side too, it, and I, you mentioned this before, like it comes from the households too. Like you can teach them whatever you want, but if the parents are racist at home, cards on the table, the kid's also going to be racist. So it's a really hard system to form. And I don't 100% know, it would would know how it would work, but it, there at least needs to be some attempt at it in a more robust way than it is currently done. Okay. And then there's also uh, inc- the increasing oversight. By oversight, right, uh, we talk about things like uh, maybe a hotline number to call, an external complaint system uh, that you can, you know, register the complaints anonymously. Uh, uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, how the oversight system can be improved? You know, I think when we wrote this book, I was because the NHL had announced they would have like a line. And I think this was probably around Akima Lou, but I, I couldn't figure out what happened to that. And I couldn't find anyone who knew. And a lot of things are mentioned and said and never happen. And I mean, I don't trust that the NHL is going to do anything at this point. So I, I think there really needs to be oversight done by an outside system because if it's coming from inside the house it's never going to change i mean i think i think it's pretty evident at this point like you like look at hockey canada they basically said like oh we're not going to follow your safe sport procedures because ours are good yeah which is i don't even i can't even think about that well, I, I think, you know, what it kind of comes down to is, uh, you know, the implementation of clear policies, right? And they need to be in place uh, across the board for all levels of hockey, right? Yeah. And I think they really need to be developed, at least with the aid of outside organizations. They can't come from the people who are working in those companies. They have to be uniform. And, I mean, you got to get, like, the IHF involved, too, because none of this happens in a silo. It's all very cross-pollinated, and it's really important that everyone is kind of on the same same page when it comes to this stuff. And it's not that difficult to do. It's just that, and unfortunately, that's the biggest barrier that, that I see is that the people who are in charge simply don't want to do it. Like Gary Bettman simply doesn't want to do it. That's That's all it comes down to, you know? Yeah. Uh, so what was your experience like writing the book? I mean, you're, you're touching on some some uncomfortable topics here, but topics that 
you know, are important and need to be looked at. Uh, I, I imagine that it, it wasn't always the most pleasurable experience uh, writing about this stuff and, and getting your thoughts down on paper and ultimately publishing the book. Talk a little bit about the experience uh, putting it all together. I think it was cathartic to write about it because a lot of it are things that, like, we kind of, at least for me, like, I talk about on and off but never really have the space for dedicated con it's not really conversation, but like a dedicated space to write more about it. And like, there are a lot of things that I know, but it was really helpful for me, especially, I think just to be able to say like, and I, this really applies to like the section on like sexual violence, but to get the statistics and write them down and look at it. And like, I've always coped with things by writing, like that's how I've spent my whole life. So for me, it was like a way to look at something objectively and write about it. And it was very helpful for me to do that. Um, It did feel a lot like slogging through the mud just because there was so much stuff. Like the interviews were so long because people, obviously, you know, people don't get to talk about this stuff a lot. So the interviews would go on for hours and there was a lot of information to take from them and we had to pick and choose. And the end, when we, right before we um, sent it in, like the book, there was like a, I think it was mostly my stuff, but at the end section, like the how to fix it section, it was really just like paragraphs and paragraphs and paragraphs of quotes. And like the last thing I had to do was go in and like cut them out, paraphrase them and make it like flow in some way. Uh And it was the absolute worst thing in the world and i sent it in and i was like i'm never looking at this again (laughs) well i know you do a lot of writing for college hockey news uh so where can people follow your work and uh and you know continue to follow the work that you do yeah normally i would say twitter but i don't know how long that's going to be around um (laughs) but you can follow me on twitter at isafi sticks or Someone recently asked me where my Twitter handle came from. I don't remember who it was. Um, or uh, my website is just justvanishad.com, which is probably where I will post wherever I move to when Twitter eventually dies. All right. And, uh, you know, where can people purchase the book? I know it's available through Barnes & Noble because I saw a, a physical hard copy, you know, there. But uh, tell us about how people can uh, investigate and learn more about the book. Yeah, so you can buy it. There are several places. You can buy it from bookshop.com, which the proceeds go to independent bookstores. You might be able to buy it at your local bookstore. Um, If you're in Canada, you can buy it from Indigo. Um, You can also buy it from Amazon, I guess, if you want. Um, There is Indie, what is it called? Indiebound.org, I think, will show you if any sellers nearby you have a book. Um, We did just release the paperback version, which actually did come out two weeks ago so that's now available for purchase if you want to purchase that instead um it's paperback so i assume it's cheaper but also it has um the hockey canada and the black hawk editions to it nice that all happened yep pretty much right when we sent the book to publisher the black hawk stuff came out that's great well i have the digital version and uh, uh i just finished it up a few days ago so thank you for you know addressing these important topics i before i let you go i gotta ask you you know you were down in tampa at the frozen four you got to experience uh, that whole scenario quinnipiac winning the men's national uh, championship uh, let me quickly get your thoughts on the frozen four well um 
So I, we each take a team. Um, which team did I end up taking? Uh, well, I obviously took BU. So right. because they lost in the first round, I was like, I'll just tag team whoever wins because we'll probably want more coverage of the winning team. Yeah. So I was in Quinnipiac's locker room and for 10 minutes, I'm not kidding you, the guys were waiting there like in a semi-circle around the center of the locker room because they were waiting for Rand Pecknell to come in and to douse him with an ice water bath. Okay. So we were all staying away from the center. However, they did not actually douse him in the center. They did it on the side. So I got a full ice water bath and oh, I was wow. completely soaked. <laughs> and it, I mean, it could be worse. It could have happened in St. Paul. Oh <laughs> so my I'm God. Not really yeah. complaining. <laughs> um, but I don't know. The, it, it was pretty stressful. I think the games were fairly good. I mean, I did have Minnesota. I had Minnesota over Quinnipiac, and I, I still maintain that the reason Minnesota lost is because the players had to bake in the Hobie ceremony, which was outside the day before in, like, 90-degree weather. It was yeah. very bad. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's always a great time when Tampa hosts. And this year, they actually shot off the Tesla coils in Amalia Arena, and they didn't do it last time. So I was very excited for that change. Um, it was good. I mean, it's always nice to see each other. I think it's very comical that Minnesota, in the past 10 years, has now lost a national championship to not one but two ECAC teams. Yeah, right, right. Um, yeah, it was a good time. Uh, that's great. And, you know, uh, as someone who saw Quinnipiac in the uh, in the regionals, uh, eliminating Merrimack, uh, I was there with Mike Macknick. We were calling the game on radio, and uh, Quinnipiac was the best team that uh, we saw all year long. And uh, it's it's not hard to see why the Bobcats uh, won it all. They were the best team in uh, men's college hockey, wire to wire. And you you got to feel for you feel happy for Rand Pecknold, uh, first uh, championship in school history. I do. It's funny because for. 10 plus years, I like, I've, I dealt with Rand a lot because I covered Princeton and they always played Quinnipiac like 8,000 times. And he was like always very, he's always very short with the media and he kind of has this like set personality. And then when they won, he was crying on the, on the bench and on the ice. And I literally turned around and I was like, who is, who is this man and what has he done with Rand Pecknells? Absolutely. Well, and it was like, yeah, it was it was really nice to see. Well, I'm glad you had a chance to experience that. Uh, you know, I've had a chance to, to read your writing, and you're very good at what you do, and I hope you continue doing it for a long, long time. Well, we're out of time here, Josefina, and uh, I want to thank you so much for joining me here on the podcast today. I know it, it's going to be a, a very, very good episode. I, I know people are going to learn a lot from it, and, and I want to thank you once again for coming on, and you're always welcome to, to come by the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right. Uh, that's Joshvina Shaw, and uh, she is the co-author of uh, Game Misconduct, Hockey's to Toxic Culture and How to Fix It. Uh, the book is available. Please uh, feel free to check it out. We hope to have Kenny Albert from Fox uh, Television on with us next week. I will be on vacation, but uh, we're hoping to get that recorded and uh, play it for you next week. So thanks so much for being on the podcast, and uh, we will look forward to talking with you next week. Mitochondrial disease is a rare multi-symptom disease characterized by breakdowns in the mitochondria, which are specialized compartments that are present in every cell of the body except red blood cells and are responsible for creating more than 90% of the energy needed by the body to sustain life and support growth. 
a disease most commonly associated with children, currently there is no cure, just management of symptoms. Hugs for Mito Inc. is mitochondrial disease, rare disease advocacy, awareness, fundraising for research trials, and hopefully a cure. To learn more, please visit hugsformito.org. 